morning. <clears throat> it's been years since I preached regularly every Sunday, and I almost never speak three times in a row. All of which leads me to conclude one thing Wes Oden is Batman. Mystery solved. This past June, my wife and I both retired. Nancy retired from a career as an elementary school teacher, and I retired as a college professor. My wife taught six and seven-year-olds how to read and write. I taught 18 to 22-year-olds how to read and write. <laughs> the African proverb is true. It does take a village. But I have never doubted that Nancy had the more difficult job. Honestly, when I think of, about standing in front of a group of six-year-olds for seven hours a day, it scares the daylights out of me. <laughs> I would rather teach New Testament to the Taliban. <laughs> Little kids just make me nervous. I'm a rather structured person, and uh, kids go through structure like a bag of gummy bears. <laughs> They are highly unpredictable, and that's just way out of my comfort zone. So all things considered, uh, working with college students was a good thing for me, not the least of which it allowed me to become somewhat oblivious, I guess, to the presence of all these little ones. But all that changed for me in August of 2014 when I looked at my grandson. I was completely unprepared for how that was going to affect me. And then a little over seven months later, same thing happened when I looked at my second grandson. I'm a Wesleyan, so I considered that the second blessing. I call it entire grandpa-fication. Of course, I'm nuts about my grandkids. That's to be expected. But what I did not expect is that suddenly I find I'm kind of nuts about little kids in general. And they're everywhere. Who knew? It's so weird. It's like they were hiding. I, I, I'm not only seeing them, I'm, I'm walking through stores and shopping malls and I'm smiling at them. I'm a curmudgeon for Pete's sake. It's one of my gifts. What's going on? In a word, it's called reorientation. Reorientation of life is a transformation of the concerns that drive our emotions and of the worldview that drives our opinions and evaluation. It is a radical change of the core lifestyle that drives our habits and our actions. 
The Bible often uses the term repentance to get at this. The Greek word for repent speaks to a radical change of mind, of the way we think. In another place, Paul speaks of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Reorientation is what we mean when we speak of being made new. And here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is speaking to a specific aspect or what we might term an evidence of this reorientation. In founding the church at Corinth, Paul has his hands full. The Corinthian church confronts him with the ultimate game of administrative whack-a-mole. It's just one thing after another with this group. In his first letter to this church, Paul tackles head-on a gallery of issues that would turn any pastor's hair gray. And here in the second letter, Paul finds himself defending his apostolic authority against some who are overly impressed with style but blind to real substance. And even some of Paul's supporters can't quite understand why he's out traipsing around the Mediterranean world instead of staying in Corinth and going head-to-head with his rivals and critics. But Paul has a much larger agenda than securing his alpha dog status among a group of immature people whose vision of life is still largely dominated by the wisdom of this world. He spends much of the fourth and early part of the fifth chapter of this letter explaining to his readers that if they would correctly understand him, that they must grasp the kind of eternal perspective under which he operates. He knows that he, along with all of us, will someday give an account of our lives before God. Paul also grasped that the essence of what it means to be an apostle is one who has been sent with a commission. And so he unapologetically confesses that he is compelled by Christ's amazing love to giving himself wholeheartedly to this commission to share the good news anywhere and everywhere. For Paul, being made new is not some kind of special status. It is not some spiritual achievement award. Rather, it is the entryway into a radically new vision of human life and vocation. That's what we have to keep in mind when we read verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is one of the best-known descriptions of Christian conversion in Scripture. And yet, lifted from its context, it is easily sold short of its intended purpose. Far too often, this verse is cited primarily to speak of the momentous change that happens in a sinner's life when he or she is born again. And that's certainly the case, but to leave the emphasis there is to miss Paul's main point. Doubtless, many people have powerful testimonies of radical change in their lives in coming to know Christ, but just as many don't have those 
incredible before and after stories, are they any less made new? I'll never forget hearing Joseph Stowell, the president, former president of Moody Bible Institute, say to a group of us, the Lord saved me as a four-year-old, and he delivered me from a life of biting my sister. <laughs> Joseph Stowell was every bit as made new as the most blatant sinner who has ever come to Christ. This verse is not primarily intending for us to look backwards at what used to be, but to look ahead to what has become new for us. And there are, all of any, there are any number of elements in our lives that are radically changed when we are made new in Christ, and Scripture speaks clearly to those elements. But here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul stresses that to become a new person in Christ is to be immersed in a new way of viewing ourselves, others, and the world. Being made new in Christ is intended to radically shift the nature of our values and priorities as we stop living for ourselves and start living for this one who gave himself for us. It is total reorientation. And the crux of this new orientation that we have centers around what God has intended for his world. And that divine intention is summarized for us here in one word, reconciliation. In embracing the new creation, we not only let go of the old, but we join ourselves to God's cosmic purpose, his mission in the world. This incredible experience of being made new is but the starting point for the rest of our lives. All of this, says Paul, is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Behind this whole endeavor, Paul sees a reconciling God. Not an angry, spiteful, wrathful God but a God whose love is great enough to take the inconceivable step of self-sacrifice in order to bring reconciliation to all of his creation. To reconcile is to restore to friendship or harmony. It is to make consistent or congruent as we look at our world today, or even our immediate neighborhoods, it would be hard to think of anything more needed than reconciliation. Our world literally screams with the incongruity of hatred and violence and disharmony. Whether we're talking about the divide between religious or political ideologies, the increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots, the continuing fractures among people along lines of race, gender, or class. Our world desperately needs reconciliation, harmony. The week before this last week, I was teaching a seminar at Northeastern Seminary in Rochester. And we were looking at a book by James Cone 
who is probably the most prominent African-American theologian in America this day, these days. There were 12 pastors in the seminar, and seven of them were African-American. We were looking at Cone's book entitled The Cross and the Lynching Tree. It is without a doubt the most gut-wrenchingly painful piece of theology I've ever read. And I sat there and I watched these wonderful pastors express their hurt and their pain that they deal with on a daily basis. They deal with the repercussions of our fractured and hateful world. And I was reminded so powerfully how important reconciliation is. And I was also reminded that until all of us in the church accept our call to be agents of reconciliation, that we will never see the healing that God intends for this world. See here that Paul says that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We have not been made new to merely twiddle our spiritual thumbs until we make our way into heaven. We have been recruited by God's Spirit to join in spreading the good news of Christ and to be living, breathing embodiments of God's reconciling purposes for the world. So we are not only reconciled to God personally, but we are now enlisted in the church's vocational purpose in the world. Just what is God up to in our world? In a word, it's reconciliation. The foundational plotline of the Bible is the story of a creator God who takes costly steps Refusing to give up on a wayward creation, he takes costly steps to bring about a full and everlasting reconciliation of the cosmos. And he has awakened you and me and all who are made new to join him in this redemptive endeavor. Now, I recognize that in one respect, I'm a very odd choice for a missions weekend speaker. I have no slides to show. I don't have any harrowing snake stories. I don't know that I've ever met a witch doctor. I don't fit the traditional, stereotypical picture of a mission speaker at all, unless unless you get what Paul's trying to say here. Because in reality, as a baptized Christian, I'm a missionary. And I'm looking at a room full of missionaries right now. What else could we possibly be? You, oh, you may never go far away from home. You may never engage in any of the kinds of traditional forms of service 
uh, that are historically identified with missions. But if you have been made new in Christ, your vocational destiny is to be part of God's reconciling work in this world. One of the great benefits of being retired is I'm rereading books I read years ago. And I've been rereading some of the work of the great Quaker philosopher Elton Trueblood. Trueblood says it's, it's hard to read the New Testament in depth and not begin to realize that the early church in its period of greatest vitality was very different from most parts of the conventional church in our own day. Perhaps the most striking feature from our contemporary point of view is that all of the early Christians were missionaries. They did not leave the evangelistic task to either professional evangelists or to pastors to whom they paid salaries for these did not exist. He says, as we read the truly exciting story of the early church persevering as it did in the face of incredible odds, we sense the difference between the task of merely supporting missionaries and of being missionaries. The early church did not have a missionary arm. The early church was a missionary movement. Christopher Wright echoes this when he says, it's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, as that God has a church for his mission in the world. That's our purpose, our calling, our God-given vocation. Someone has said that our vocation is what we can't not do. If you are a new creation in Christ, what you can't not do is be an agent of God's reconciling grace to this world. Perhaps you noticed when you looked in today's bulletin that a current popular movie stole my sermon title. It's so annoying when that happens. It's okay. I'll work with it. I suspect that franchise needs all the help it can get. I mean, droids. Wookies, lightsabers, like anybody's going to buy into that nonsense. But the story's interesting. It's a story of a galaxy where a small republic finds itself fighting the powers of darkness and evil. And frankly, the republic doesn't stand much of a chance until something called the Force awakens. Strange as it seems, this power, this force, proves to be more than adequate to the task of securing the triumph of the people of that threatened world. Our task of taking the message of reconciliation into our broken world seems impossible until we rightly grasp the power of the force, God's church. Some of you find that incredulous. 
God did not miscalculate when he committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Just yesterday I read a United Methodist bishop who said that the greatest force at work in our world today is a local church guided by the Holy Spirit. But you see, the force will only awaken when Christians understand the idea that missionary vocation is universal. The church cannot function as God intends it to function unless the members accept the fact that each one is made new to be a part of Christ's reconciling reconciling purpose for the world. There are meant to be as many missionaries as there are believers. Most of the time, being a missionary does not require that you leave home, or at least go far away from it. It simply requires engagement in the ministry of reconciliation. The only way to be loyal to the fire of Christ is to spread it. Thomas Oden says that the church does not elicit mission, but rather mission elicits, awakens, and empowers the church. The very purpose of our coming together as a community is in order that we may be fully prepared to be sent. The church comes together to receive grace and then scatters to declare grace. The church gathers to hear the word of God's reconciling love for the fallen world world, and then departs to embody that love within the world. So what? So what are we supposed to do with that? This is the only time I will ever, ever quote Bill Belichick in a sermon. As he says to his New England Patriots, do your job. Do your job. Paul says, therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. Ambassadors, not tourists. Ambassadors, not day trippers. Ambassadors, not collectors of cultural knickknacks. Ambassadors, representatives of another kingdom, a kingdom where Jesus is Lord. So what would it mean for you to faithfully represent God's reconciling intent for this world? What would it mean for each of us here today to take seriously our vocational call to be agents of reconciliation in this world? What would it mean for us to stop looking at other people through the lens of this world and rather begin to regard them as recipients of the new creation? As ambassadors of Christ's reconciling kingdom, how would we respond to the issues of our day, like immigration and terrorism, and and in confronting the culture of violence in this country, 
How do, we, how do we respond to racism? How do we respond to the issues of justice and equality for all people? What would an ambassador of Christ do? At minimum, it entails getting the salt out of the salt shaker. Ambassadors who spend all of their waking moments hanging out at the embassy do their country a grave disservice. Kevin Van Hooser says followers of Christ must do more than observe his story from a safe distance. There's a difference between an onlooker and a witness. The onlooker observes but, but does not take part in the action. By way of contrast, the one giving witness is an active participant. Churches full of onlookers is hardly God's intention. So until the Christian church takes its vocation seriously, the church will continue to appear to the rest of this world like an overanxious social club. It's interesting to think that the residents in Corinth in the year A.D. 55 could have identified with no trouble at all the location of the Temple of Apollo. They could have given us directions. But the question of the location of the Church of Jesus Christ would have stumped them. They could not have pointed to a building at a certain address, for there were no such structures in existence. If Christian witness is relegated to a building with four walls, the harm comes not in what occurs within these particular walls, but in the consequent easing of our conscience about what goes on elsewhere. So the question this morning is simply this. Where is Houghton Church? Is, is the answer a street address on Route 19? That huge field of solar panels lies just beyond the field of dreams north of town is, is an impressive sight. There it sits day by day, according to some good folk in North Carolina, slowly draining the energy out of our sun. My science faculty friends at Houghton assure me that that's, this is not the case. No, those panels are the visible evidence of power. A force, if you will. And the force represented in those panels has incredible potential. Potential that is surely about something beyond just heating up the bagel toaster in the college dining hall. It is an energy force that needs to be utilized to its fullest potential. 
maybe better than most because of my background, I know that Houghton Church has an incredible history of worldwide influence over the years with regards to the mission of God in this world. There are few churches that have cast a greater shadow for God and his kingdom, but you must never allow contentment and justifiable pride in the past to defer in any way the urgency of the present. God in Christ has taken the all-important step to bring reconciliation to his world, and he desires all of us to join him as agents of reconciliation. A few weeks ago, we were watching the Kennedy Center Honors, and they were honoring the great actress Cicely Tyson. And as part of the tribute to this great woman, they brought out the gospel singer C.C. Winans, who sang, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. And as that hymn of praise to Jesus for his reconciling love was being sung, the cameras panned the audience. And I was struck by the celebrities and the politicians and the power brokers who had big tears coursing down their cheeks. There is something about the possibility of being made new, of being reconciled, with God that resonates deep within the hearts of human beings. Instead of telling them that they are judged, why don't we give them the good news of God in Christ reconciling all things to himself? For this, we have been made new. Rise up, O church of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Amen.